Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Fox Nomad Travel Smarter Podcast. I'm your host, Fox Nomad, Anil Polat, here in Lahore, Pakistan, and we've got a lot to get into today. I actually just changed kind of the plan for today's podcast because of an experience I had last night that I want to share with you. And just a couple of quick notes. If you hear any noise in the background, there's construction going on right outside of my hotel room. So hopefully I tried it out and hopefully that shouldn't be picked up by the microphone. But if you hear something in the background, that's what it is. And in terms of why I don't do a video version of this podcast, generally, this the, the setup I have right now is pretty much the reason why. I, it's basically a room with a massive bed and everything else is on the edges. So I'm kind of sitting half off the bed got my laptop across from me. It's just not the ideal setup. It's a little bit wonky, but here we go. So on today's podcast, I've got a couple of things that I want to share with you. The first one is an opium-fueled festival in Lahore that I attended last night. And I wanted to give you just some general ideas or impressions of Pakistan that I've had so far in the last week or so that I've been here. The second thing I want to get into is uh, traveling in Cuba and the realities of traveling in Cuba. A uh, travel blogger posted a couple of things from Cuba, and it's kind of one of those things that, um, honestly, I felt just kind of portrays a misconception that a lot of people have of Cuba and just traveling there. And so a lot of the media that comes out of there, I think, is a little bit uh, misleading. So I wanted to give my thoughts on Cuba and travel in Cuba. And then the next thing, the final thing, is one of you sent me a question. You want to hear my thoughts about flying and climate change, my thoughts on what that is. Obviously, I do fly a lot, so I wanted to give my opinions on that. Um, so let's just get right into it. So I'm feeling a little bit rough this morning. I arrived in Lahore yesterday from Islamabad. So let me tell you just a little bit about Islamabad, Pakistan. This is my first trip to Pakistan, so new decade, new year, new country. So uh, I arrived in Islamabad, which is a planned city. In other words, it's a fairly new city. Um, it's very well organized in a grid system. And everybody in Pakistan that I've met so far who's not from Islamabad and in Lahore have told me that it's basically the elite city. So people only are there really to work. So they're either diplomats or they work for some company or something like that. It's not really a sort of a homegrown city, I guess you could say. So, um, and it's very a relaxed City. So I have got a good video coming up about my first impressions and some videos that I took from there. But I don't want to call it a sleepy city, but it's a pretty laid back city. And I was not expecting that in this part of the world, usually things are, you know, big cities are pretty hectic. And I'd say Islamabad is not, so far, everybody I've encountered has been very friendly. And I know that's such a cliche to say about a place, but people have been very, very friendly. I mean, the way I look kind of confuses people. So the way I dress looks different, but um, the way I look, I can easily blend in here. So I think people get a little bit confused when they see me. They're like, hmm, dresses like he's not from here, but looks like he's from here. And so I have that a lot going on, which is which is always, it's always kind of fun, funny to me. Um, but, but in general, people have been very friendly. English is pr pretty widespread. So the you know and most people speak english here so it's easy enough to communicate and get around and i've really enjoyed it the only bad part i'd say is is the taxis so um it's if you're gonna try to take a taxi just off the street you've got to negotiate pretty hard they're still gonna try to rip you off 
it's gonna it's not a great experience uh, but they do have uber and they have an app called kareem here which a lot of people use so that that kind of takes the hassle out of that but if you want wi-fi so if you come here with a foreign phone and you want to activate it and get a sim card you pretty much have to pay a 200 $250 tax on the phone since it's not uh, since it wasn't purchased in Pakistan. Now you can get like a Nokia phone. You can get one of those. So that's about 3000 rupees which is I think like I want to say off the top of my head conversion about $20. So you can get a phone so you can call people and they can call you. But if you want a SIM card with data obviously you need a smartphone so you either have to buy a smartphone from Pakistan or you've got to pay that tax. Um, I've chosen not to do either of those things because it's a lot of money for for a tax um, for only spending a, you know a couple weeks here so um, most places do have wi-fi so as long as you can get that wi-fi signal you can call an uber and avoid just a massive pain in the butt with the taxi drivers because it's it's just it's a hassle so that was my first impression of Pakistan. I spent a couple of days in Islamabad. I went to the university to a very popular street food stall there with students. Again, I've got a video of that coming up on YouTube, so I'll, I'll share more about that there. But I want to head over to Lahore because I literally, so I got to Lahore and it's really much more what I expected when I expected in Pakistan. So it's a really hectic city. It's crowded, bustling uh, lots of traffic, lots of noise, lots going on. It's really much more what I expected. You see rickshaws everywhere. You don't really see that in Islamabad. Um, and the the city is just sprawling. So there are these different sort of city centers. I mean, there's like a city center center. But then there are these other centers where the, you know, the wealthier people tend to live. So you've got the bigger houses, you've got malls and that kind of thing. But I arrived on Thursday night. So I, I got here on intentionally on Thursday because of a recommendation that uh, my friend Derek, who writes Wandering Earl, uh, shout out to him, check out his website. So he gave me, he said, if you're going to Lahore, you need to go there on Thursday night and you need to go to this Sufi festival. So I found a guide and I said, hey, do you know about this festival at this shrine? So um, the, the name of the shrine, let me just look that up really quickly here. I should, I should have probably prepared that, but, uh, so let me name, let me look up the name of this shrine. So I contacted the guide and I said, "Do you know this shrine? Do you know this festival? I'd like to, I'd like to go." And I don't really know this guide, so the guide was uh, a recommendation of a recommendation of a recommendation. So I didn't really know what to expect. Um, there was a big accident on the highway on the bus from Islamabad to Lahore, so we got stuck in traffic. It took me about six hours to get here. Normally it's about four and a half. So I arrived in Lahore about 6 p.m. And I know that this event is taking place around 9. So I got in touch with the guide and he said, I'll meet you at your hotel at 8. So just trying to look for the name of that of that shrine. So we, we agreed upon meeting at 8 o'clock. And, you know, with a guide, you never know what you're going to get. I mean, it was kind of a recommendation from a recommendation. And so I didn't know what to expect. So he showed up in the hotel and we discussed it. And he was saying, yeah, I know about this festival, but I think he was a little bit confused as to why I want to go. My guess is not a lot of people actually go there, at least not a lot of tourists. Um, so he was like, why do you want to go? And then he saw my, my camera equipment and he, he kind of thought it was, um, let's just say that the, the prices just sort of immediately changed. Um, 
And then anyway, so we had to renegotiate that. But I didn't want to go without a guide because I had really not been here long enough. And I didn't know, you know, I wasn't really familiar with the city. And also I'm told it was pretty hectic. And I'm really glad that I did go with a guide. So the name of this uh, festival is the Madhu Lai Hussein Shrine. So that's the name of the shrine. Uh, I don't remember the name of the of the actual ceremony that I witnessed, but it happens every Thursday night. So let me set this up for you. So the guide arrives at 8 at the hotel, and then we, we take off to this uh, shrine, which is kind of on the outskirts of the city. Um, and we walk in. And it's funny because there's like a metal detector, but it's not plugged in, not working, but everybody walks through it. And uh, as you often see here, you see like, and there's like an 80 year old guy with like a, like a pump shotgun sitting outside, but it didn't seem very secure. And I do know that there was another festival like this in Lahore that was actually uh, bombed two years in 2017. So they don't do that one anymore. Um, so anyway, I showed up. The metal detector is not working. It's, it, it might not even actually have been a metal detector, but everybody walks through it. And in front, you've got this shrine, uh, which really, to me, looked uh, like a mosque. So it's a big, white, bright mosque. And kids running around. So nothing too unusual there. You know, it's just it's about 9 p.m. now, and it's really active. So I hear music in the, in the background. And I was told that if I take my camera out, that everybody's going to, it's going to cause a commotion and that everyone was going to demand money from me. So my first thing was, let me see how this goes. So I just started videoing with my phone. So I'm just taking videos and clips with my phone. Again, there's going to be a whole video of this uh, up on YouTube in the next couple of days. But this is your first look. Uh, so so anyway, so I've got my phone out. And I'm just kind of videoing. I've got my camera on my bag. And this it's it's just really crowded. So I'm thinking, all right, got to manage, you know, you know, as that travelers, I'm like, I don't really know if I can trust the guide. I've got to watch out for pickpockets. Um, he said it's usually generally pretty safe there, but obviously you've got to, you've got to wonder, especially when there are like little kids running around. So they're like at kind of that pocket level. I've got my wallet in my front pocket, my phone in my other pocket, got the camera, uh, you know, backpack on the back. And uh, so I'm thinking about all these things. I've got my camera out and I'm just filming and I'm expecting like a mob of people to come up to me. And the funny thing is, is nobody could really care less. So at least in the front part of the shrine, I was, I felt a lot more comfortable. It seems a lot more normal than I was expecting. I was like, oh, okay, maybe there's just some music going on. And then as we walk just sort of on the side of this shrine, there's a, a large group of people in a circle and they're all watching something and I, I kind of sort of move my way up into the front. And what I see is a group of probably, I want to say, about 20 men. And uh, as and by the way, as I walk up to this, the smell of, at least of marijuana, just the, this, this, I mean, there was a cloud of, of, at least of weed and probably some other things. So I later found out a couple other things that they're smoking, but... I mean, it was in t intense, um, intense contact high going on there. So there's this smell and this huge cloud that's coming around this group of about 10, 20 guys. And they're all barefoot. And there's a drummer who's playing the drums really loud. So he's playing this music. It's a boom, boom, boom. It's all this music going around. And these guys with long black hair, they've got this jet black hair 
and it's long. I mean, their shoulders, some some even longer. And they are, they're all barefoot and they are spinning. Like, I want to say like violently just spinning around, like spinning like crazy. You know how like when you're a child, you know, you, you realize like if you spin enough, you can get dizzy and it's kind of fun. But, you, you know, you do that a couple times and you're dizzy and then you stop. I, these guys were spinning for like, I mean, just imagine just getting up and just spinning yourself as widely as you can for 15, 20 minutes, just nonstop going and going and going to the beat of this drum. And these guys would go faster and faster. And I don't know how they didn't just fall over. It was it was one of the craziest things. It was just sort of bizarre to see it. And you look around the crowd and everybody's eyes are just like glazed over. So I found out that these they're all smoking. So this is a kind of a, it's not really a Sufi festival. It's more like a, it's not a religious ceremony. It's more like a, like I said, uh, sorry, it's more like a festival, kind of like a party or a gathering. And it's been going on for a very long time, according to what I was told. And, uh, but the drugs is kind of a newer addition as far as I'm told. So the, I guess apparently according to the religion, uh, drugs are not cool, but it was pretty open. I mean, everybody was just smoking openly. It was really surprising considering that this is a pretty conservative place. Obviously you can't find alcohol very easily. It's pretty much restricted to just maybe a few of the, of the five-star kind of hotel rooftops, that kind of thing. But I mean, there's no alcohol being sold on the streets or anything like that. So um, it was pretty bizarre to see, to hear that these guys were all high on weed and opium and smoking it so openly. Um, so they're playing this drum and it's it's just beating. And these guys, like everybody around me is is super, super high, like really, really high. And in between these guys spinning around, and the drummer playing just this boom, 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 this music that's just so loud. Um, and these guys are spinning just maybe a couple feet in front of me. And, you know, I was like, they're going to flip around and just smack right into me. But they didn't. Uh, and at this point, I'm feeling more comfortable. So I take out my big camera. So I've got my camera. I'm switching it with the with my phone. Then switching back to the camera, just trying to get all these angles. And in between me doing that the a guy behind the drummer takes out like a wad of cash and just throws it up in the air and all these kids like run and jump to the ground to collect as much of this money as they can and that happened a few times so these guys start spinning and then they start they would switch from spinning into this like synchronized head banking so imagine you know head you know head banging but imagine like taking your head and like you know, throwing it about hip level and then swinging your head back up. Uh, if I did that, I'd probably just black out after one try. But these guys were just, you know, kind of like taking their head, just like head banging, but like not like bobbing their head. I mean, literally taking their head, swing it down pr probably below their waist and swinging it back up as fast as they could possibly do it for minutes on end to the drum beat as it gets faster and faster and faster. And Everybody is just standing around watching. In between, there's money thrown in the air. Everybody is smoking uh, weed and opium, and they are all really high. So it was it was just really quite an experience. And this is uh, this is just the dancing area. So uh, it reminded me really of so if you've seen a whirling dervish, um, it's a pretty common sight in in Turkey at least. If you go to any of the touristic things in Istanbul. 
you've probably seen a whirling dervish show and the way that works is these guys um they spin you know they get that white uh robe and these uh long hats that they wear and they spin with one hand up and one hand facing the ground they can spin for hours to a music but they get into that trance not through the use of drugs but through meditation and prayer and they they can train themselves to spin like this uh, endlessly really uh for for sometimes days without getting dizzy because they are in a meditative state and they have practiced this over many many years uh apparently the shortcut to that is just to do a lot of opium and smoke some weed and uh you'll be able to sp- probably do all that stuff too without really facing at least those effects so i i've got my camera out at this point it's funny that the guide was saying that people were gonna kind of like mob me ask me for money and all this stuff and nobody could care less um and that's kind of the thing that i've noticed in pakistan in general just me i mean i do stand out uh because my dress is just different so um a lot of people will tell me oh you look like you could blend in which is true physically i can blend in but the way i dress uh is very obvious that i'm not that i'm not from here uh just cuz it doesn't fit the norm uh and i tend to wear bright colorful jackets which people don't don't seem to do here but nobody could really honestly as you walk down the street or anything most you know it's not like people are coming up to you cut the occasional stare but it's not like a this swarm of beggars or something like that again maybe this was my misconception before coming here but at this uh, opium fueled you know festival nobody could care less and so i was just openly filming people nobody asked me for money or anything like that and so um as we're filming there was even another guy across and he wasn't a tourist i was the only foreigner there but he you know the pakistani people that have come to see this and they've also got their big cameras out and you know it was totally fine so as we walk around the music and I'm half deaf at this point so we go around to the back end and there's this huge fire that they've lit and there's three of these going on so the first one is kind of a fire where people are standing around and praying uh and it, it, I don't remember the exact name of that ceremony uh I've got it in my notes but they're standing around and and praying around this really large fire that's right outside the shrine but behind the dancers there is this huge fire and everybody is has got you know they look like cigarettes I mean, they've got filters on them and everything but they're all filled with uh weed and opium and hashish and it and it really smells I mean, there's no doubt about what they were smoking and everybody so i could see people more close up now so these aren't just the dancers or the people in the crowd and i could see and everybody was just stoned out of their brains they looked pretty happy too um so they're just all smoking openly there's a large cloud coming around from this fire and as you walk around to that to this third fire there was a uh, a sufi holy man there and so a large people gathered around him there were pictures of this guy everywhere kind of on these posters on the on the brick walls that are around and you know this is all outdoors it's pretty chilly as well at this time of the year so it was i'd say it's just cold i'd say probably you know like 4 or 5 degrees celsius about 40 degrees fahrenheit so it's pretty chilly um but this was a a clear cloud of all the drugs everybody was smoking and the the sufi leader was there i took pictures with him and 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 like i said nobody bothered me or anything like that um i got to talk to one guy who was kind of making this jewelry at this very elaborate 
like massive necklace around. So this like huge necklace that went about almost to his belly with just massive jewels and, and gems. It was this big thing. And we were talking, I don't know what he was saying to me, but he was laughing and he was in a great mood. So we got to talk to him. And uh, so, yeah, so that's, that's basically your sort of the first look at this uh, festival. I'm going to write, uh, a couple of posts on this. I've got a video coming up, so I'm going to put more details for the name of the festival and obviously show it to you. Uh, I So I went in with the intention of trying to vlog this, trying to both kind of talk as I explain what I was seeing in the video, but it didn't work out that way. It was way too loud. It was really, really loud, and there was just so much going on that I said, all right, I'm just going to film it, and then I'm going to explain it later. So... Um, this was my first look at that, and I hope you enjoyed that little first look at the Opium Fueled Festival in Lahore. If you want details on how to get there, uh, I'll leave some some things in the show notes. And again, you can check that out, or you can just tweet me at Fox Nomad. And if you if you're here and you want to visit, I can give you some more information. But you definitely want to go with a guide. It's very hectic, so once you figure out where everything is and kind of you know you get comfortable just being in that crowded environment not you know and more familiar with it it's you can just show up so if you've got a lot of travel experience you could probably do that but having somebody there makes it easier to interact with everybody and sort of explain what's going on so i'd really recommend you do that but it's definitely certainly something to check out in lahore it's pretty intense it's not for everybody but you know if uh, drugs and dancing is something that you'd like to see well that's the place to do it. So now going into the second topic, I really want to talk about Cuba. So I saw, I've been seeing a couple of uh, travel bloggers going to Cuba lately, and I was there three years ago in Cuba. And a lot of them, so a couple of influencers that I, I follow, and I'm not going to call anybody out, but basically posting pictures of themselves on these old cars. So most people are familiar with the Cuban with those old cars from the 50s and 60s that you see around. They're brightly painted. They look in great shape. And you see people, you know, it's great for the Instagram photo, taking pictures on it. And it's so cool that these old cars are there. And it is, but most of those really brightly, highly maintained, flawless paint job cars that you see are in the very, very center of town. And they're there for tourists. So people don't really drive those cars. Those uh, cars that are in the mint shape, those are driven for tourists and they're maintained for tourists. Um, there are a couple of taxis that you can take that are those old vintage cars, but they're in a lot worse shape. One thing that I noticed when I was in Cuba that those cars are broken down everywhere. You've got at every traffic light, it seemed like one of these cars was broken down. And, you know, every so many of the Cuban guys that I saw um, were just fixing their cars at stoplights. And you know, it's really a testament to how good of an engineer that most of the Cuban people who are familiar with cars have become because they've got to maintain these old cars. And you got to remember that, you know, they're not driving these old cars out of choice. It's really because they can't get other better cars. And obviously there's the effects of of the U.S. embargo and such, such and so on. So it's not like they're driving these cars from the 50s because they want to. It's not ideal. 
I don't know if you've ever been in a car from the 50s or 60s, but they are very, very loud. Uh, the smog that they produce is just, it just smells terrible. It's not very comfortable. They look cool, but the seats are not comfortable at all. It's terrible. If you've ever tried to drive one, I mean, there's no power steering. So, I mean, it's just a big beast of a machine. So whenever you see, I think, somebody taking a picture of these beautiful cars, and they do look cool. I mean, they're very iconic. You got to remember that those pictures were taken right in the very center of town. This is like this small part of the town of Havana, just right on the water where people are taking these pictures. And that's where all those cars are. And it's expensive to take a ride in those cars, relatively speaking. Um, you know, these those cars are going to cost, I think like, let me look that up. I think it's like $20 a ride, which is a, a lot of money in, in Cuba. Uh, and that's not something that most of the locals can afford. You know, that's something that the nearly 3 million uh, tourists in visiting Cuba can afford, but that's not something that the, most of the locals can. Most of the seats inside those the, the regular cars that people drive are just pretty much duct tape at this point. They're just duct taped all up. And duct tape is pretty pretty amazing. You can make a door window out of duct tape. You can make a, you can pretty much, you know, replace the seat of one of those old cars with duct tape. And it's it's pretty impressive. Again, these are all it's it's just impressive to see the the uh ingenuity and the sort of improvisation improvisation that you know as a hacker that these are just great hacks to keep the cars running and on the flip side you know when you think of cuba you think that there's just pretty much it's a communist country and you think that everybody's you know everybody gets the same amount of everything and they do have like for most people they've got an egg allowance so you get you get like 10 eggs a day something like that but i stayed basically what's called a casa particular so i want to talk a little bit about that experience and what those are is there is an Airbnb option in Havana, Cuba. So you can actually get an Airbnb. But they have these uh, Casa Particulars, which are homes for rent. And the reason I recommend, or I would recommend most people to stay at that if you're a foreigner visiting Havana, I wouldn't really stay at the resorts because those resorts are very overpriced and it doesn't it doesn't put you in contact with a lot of the Cuban people, really. But if you stay at one of these places, uh, those are not technically hotels. So it's not technically allowed for people to rent their homes out. But as long as the owner is there, they do allow it. So the owner will be, usually these are very, very, very large apartments. So like 10 bedroom apartments. And the owner is usually there. They have to stay there. And in my particular case, I had this little old lady who was explaining that her husband was in the military, he was high up. So it was clear to me that they had money. Uh, they had all, it was interesting too, they had brand new appliances that were all Western appliances, a lot of American brands that were in the house. So it seems like that embargo, there are some ways to get around it, it seemed like to me. And in talking with her, you, I realized, and, and as she explained sort of, I guess in subtext, that there are classes in Cuba. So there are these people that have government jobs or that are high up in the military or in the government and they have a lot of money like they're making a good amount of money uh, just not even just for Cuba but just in general and so these are the people who are living very very well but most of the other people are living on allowances of small amounts of food per week uh, most of the people that you speak to in in Cuba are not very well off 
And you can go to certain, like there are other tourist events, like this cabaret show at the Tropicana, which is very popular. And when you show up there, you realize that it's really just a big, big tourist trap. It's it's a big tourist trap. It's really expensive. And so there's this real big disconnect from pretty much everybody visiting there and what life, at least in, in Havana, is like. It's important to see both. You've got to realize that you can go into the old city. There's a couple of uh, local places that you can eat. And there are two currencies. So there's a currency for foreigners that you have to use and a currency for locals. The currency for foreigners is the conversion rate is a lot different. So it's about, it's about I want to say like 10 times the value of the regular currency that the uh, locals use. And so whenever you go into like one of these government run shops, so if you're going to pay something, you have to use that currency. You got to know that you're paying about a lot more than a local would. So the numbers are the same. So like it's two, you know, it's two dollars for a local and for you. But in your currency, that's, it's like 10 times the amount. So it's these two currencies going on. And it's just one of those places that's complex to see. You've got to imagine uh, there are a lot of the Cuban people are very friendly and people will come up to you and talk to you. And you have these sort of misconceptions. You notice at night, everybody is crowded around hotel lobbies because the couple of the, the, basically the international hotels have Wi-Fi. And it's not censored at all, which I thought was very interesting. Go to any of the news websites and you can read anything you want. And at night, the, the Cuban people will huddle outside these hotels to catch that Wi-Fi signal, sit outside, hang out with friends, and, you know, I guess get online and... As far as I know, the internet is open to everybody. So that was something that I found very unusual and very different. And Cuba is just not what you think it is. When you go there, you have this misconception. And when you leave, you're probably more confused. At least I was. It's definitely not an I ideal place. I mean, it, it, you know, you see people that are clearly held in poverty, but then you see people doing well off. So if you've never been to Cuba, what you see online, what you see from a lot of people taking pictures of these cars is giving a misleading impression of what the country is actually like. But then after you visit, you also leave thinking, I am really confused about this place. It's a little bit more free than I was expecting. It's a little bit more, there's more class divide than I was expecting. And it's just not what I was expecting. So if you're going to visit Cuba... I think that if you stay at a Casa Particular, if you walk around and try to eat at some local places, you'll get a different experience. You get to talk to some locals, you get to see what it's like and make your own judgments about the place. And finally today, I want to talk a little bit and reply to a question that I got from Twitter about flying and climate change. So I want to give a shout out to Henke Hansen for asking this question. What is your take on climate change and limiting air travels? So let's get right into that. So first of all, there are a couple of things that I have that are sort of personal rules. And, you know, they're not hard rules, but generally there are a couple of things that I do to avoid flying generally. So if a destination, so I was in New York, for example, Boston, I went to Boston right after. It's about a four and a half, five hour bus trip. Essentially, if it's safe enough, you know, in some parts of the world going by ground, it's not always an option or it's not always the safest option. But if it's a decent option and something is within four to five hours, I almost always will go by ground. So whether that's a bus or a train, I'll go by ground. And there's a couple of reasons for that. First is 
if even so the new york flight let's say as an example is one hours from new york to boston but you've got to calculate in you've got to get to the airport two hours ahead of time so that includes your trip to the airport so let's say that whole process is a solid two and a half hours for example but let's cut it down to two let's say you really like to cut it close so now you've got one hour of flight you've got two hours then to be at the airport that's now you're now at three hours once you're at the airport for me since i travel with so many electronics 50 percent of the time i'm going to get sent into a separate line and they open up my bag and look through everything packing all of that in i've got to be very organized so i can't just throw stuff into my bag and out of my bag so when i unpack it when i pack it it takes a lot of effort and so i hate i hate doing that at the airport i know that probably i'm gonna to have to take all my stuff out and I hate spending the time to pack it. For me personally, I have to get to the airport just a little bit earlier than most people since I know that in security I'm probably going to have my bag double-checked and just taking all the stuff out as a regular check, you know, you've got to take your laptop and tablet, those things out. But since I do travel with a lot of large electronics, I just take those out anyway to try to avoid as much hassle as I can. I've also got a tripod, audio, mic stand. I've got all this stuff. So I know that it's going to take some time. So that's now three hours at the airport. And then about an hour, because I always check luggage since I've got a lot of electronics, I can't carry anything else than electronics in my carry-on bag. So I know that I've got to check in a bag. And by the time you get from the plane to baggage claim, wait for baggage claim, get to your hotel or wherever you're staying, let's say that's another hour. So if you add all that up, now that that flight to Boston is a four, four and a half hour ordeal. And because of that, it makes more sense to take a bus or a train for me. Because if the train leaves at 9, you can pretty much show up at like 8.55 and get on the train. And same thing with the bus. There's no, you just get on. There's no security check. You don't go through your bags. It's a lot easier. And so the time savings is huge. It save you about two hours of time. A couple of other things, usually like with buses, obviously they're they're cheaper, but you also have more routes on a bus. So let's say you've got a bus at nine and if it's close enough, usually you've got a couple buses throughout the day. So you have more options for when you can leave your departure time. So you might need to, you might prefer to leave in the morning or in the afternoon or in the evening based on your plans and your hotel checkout. You get more options when it comes to ground travel. You also have a more comfortable experience. Usually you have more space. If you take a train or you take the bus, if you get a better class seat, you can usually have more leg room. So those are one of the, those are a couple of the reasons that I take ground travel also for health reasons. So when you go in the air, I've written an article about this whether traveling ages you physically or not. But you you might not know that pilots and airline hostesses, hostess, airline people, people who work in the sky a lot have an increased chance for many types of different cancers. And this has been studied. I've written an article about this. I can link that in the show notes. But they have an increased risk of cancer because there's higher levels of radiation. You're up higher. You're about thirty to 40,000 feet up, 10,000 meters. And because of that, you're exposed to more of the cosmic radiation that we get from the sun and the universe. And that's that can take its toll on your DNA over time. And so... Uh, like pilots, like I said, are at increased risk of, of that kind of damage. So the more you fly, the more you increase yourself to those cosmic rays. And on top of that, when you fly, if you, you know, you when you fly, 
you get those, you get swollen ankles, your feet get swollen. If you ever notice that when you land, you're a little bit sweaty, you feel groggy. And uh, that's because when you go up, there's less air pressure, means your blood pressure goes down. I'm not a, I'm not a doctor. I've just talked to doctors about this and researched it. So I'm not a doctor. Don't take this as medical advice. This is the reason, these are some of the reasons that I try to avoid flying. Uh, but when you're up in the sky, your blood pressure drops. And that's be- that's why you get this fluid and this blood buildup in your feet. And you don't move as much when you're in the sky. The air is drier, so that's not as good for your sinuses. But when you land again, because you're at now at sea level or you're lower at least, the air pressure is higher and then your blood pressure goes up. People who fly very frequently are at risk of blood clots. And it's just you just don't feel as good you know, you feel kind of rough after a flight. So taking that one-hour flight to Boston, you're going to feel worse, at least in general, in my experience, than you would after a four- or five-hour bus trip. And that's one of the other reasons that I try to avoid flying when I'm in that range. I don't mind going by ground, and I try to avoid it both for the time savings as well as kind of the, the health effects, and I just, just, just don't, I just don't like it. Also, airports are, it's just the food is bad, and all sorts of reasons. So those are some of the reasons that if I'm within four to five hours, I'll go by ground. I have, though, gotten more interested in this concept of fliegska, which is a Swedish word that means flight shame. And if you've been not living under a rock and you've heard of Greta Thunberg, you know that this has caused, in Sweden at least, uh, the airline people flying, or I guess the, the number of people flying to drop by 4%. And so people are flying less because of the environmental savings. And I was really curious, so I started to research. I wanted to see if there really was a difference between flying and taking a train or a bus. And there's a, there's a pretty significant difference for a lot of reasons. One, I found this article in the Seattle Times by Philip Berano, who's a professor of technology and public policy in the University of Washington. He wrote an article about, so he's a formal, former federal air pollution control program official. He says that air pollution contributes to global warming. I think that's pretty obvious. There's an exhaust coming out. You're also flying higher in the sky, leaving smaller particles in the atmosphere, and so on. And he said, however, if an individual foregoes flying, the plane will fly anyway. The only carbon saved is the tiny increment due to the weight of one passenger and luggage. Now, he calculates out the amount of carbon and the amount of emissions. So he says a Boeing 757, which weighs 142,400 pounds with 200 passengers, which is the average weight with a luggage of 200 pounds each, totals 182,000 pounds. I didn't realize how heavy a freaking airplane was. So the savings if one less person flies is 0.0011 of the weight i.e. 0.11% of the weight. So he calculates this to mean an online calculator indicates 12,320 pounds of carbon emitted on a round trip from Seattle to Europe. I will add that Seattle to Europe is is pretty far. You're probably going to need to fly that if you're going to take that route. And he said the emission savings would be 13.5 pounds. So out of that 12,320 pounds of carbon emitted from a trip from Seattle to Europe, that flight, if you don't fly, the savings is going to be 13.5 pounds because you as a human are not 
you're less weight for the plane. And it says flight shamers fail to analyze incrementally, not accounting for the plane flying anyway. Dividing total emissions by the number of passengers, they say that not flying on this flight would save 912 pounds of carbon, a 68-fold air. So I appreciate the calculation. However, there's a couple of things that he notes in this last paragraph, which I think a lot of people are missing. It says individual actions feel good, but only if large numbers of people spurred by governmental regulations participate in the change behavior. And there are meaningful environmental effects like banning plastic grocery bags. Government is unlikely to limit the number of flights, so this problem needs other solutions, i.e. improved rail service, reducing emissions, and lighter aircraft. Flight shaming alone is unlikely to do it. Well, I think, like anything, uh, it, comes in the, it comes in bulk, right? So if a lot of people, like in Sweden, for example, are flying less, and they're opting to take the train or the bus, and it's clearly had an impact. And I'll, I'll say this, this fliegsgam, this... Flight shaming is really only a year old. I mean, Greta Thunberg, is, her campaign started, I think, like, what, a year ago, 18 months ago? And if it's causing a, already a 4% drop in the, the amount of people who are flying because of this reason in Sweden, it doesn't seem like a lot, but I think it can be a trend. It's something that people are talking about. I know that for me personally, when I was in London uh, last year, later last year, and I was going up to Edinburgh, I sorry Edinburgh and I was going up there I opted to take the train I did not I did not fly there was about a 6 hour train ride and my primary reason for not flying was I thought that it would be less less emissions you know I I did it this I figured all right well there seems to be some evidence that flying is causing environmental harm as is bus and train I know that but I figure that all right. Well, this is a this is a case where if I'm gonna try to make a, some sort of impact, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna not fly. And I know that it's a tiny thing; it doesn't save the world by me not flying. But I imagine that if a lot of other people are making that same that same decision, then perhaps things will change, and perhaps it will be better for the environment overall. Perhaps there will be less flights. Perhaps flight prices will increase and. There will be more ground transportation that can happen. There's going to be an evolution of the market as people change. You do see a lot of people in Europe, for example, and uh, across the world who don't use plastic bags, who bring their own bags to the grocery store. In Islamabad, for example, in Pakistan, plastic bags are banned. So you can't use a plastic bag. Everybody, you can either buy a paper bag or a, a cloth bag at any of the grocery stores or supermarkets, and almost everybody brings their bags. That resulted in a lot, I mean, from what I can see, I don't think plastic bags are banned in Lahore because there's a lot of plastic stuff floating around the streets. But there, uh, there's a lot less garbage. And I think perhaps that's also made an impact. And, and I think people are using less plastic. You're getting charged at the store a couple of cents for a plastic bag in some parts of the world and that discourages people from using plastic and so on. So I think that these small things can add up. I don't buy the argument that, oh, well, you're, you know, you not flying is only saving 0.11% of the emissions. Yeah, that's true. But if, if, if lots more people start considering the impact of of flying and they change their habits, it's going to make a difference. And I think that causes the market to change and that's always good. 
for example, Tesla, if you look at Tesla, I mean, I was at CES last year, and if you heard the last episode, Sony came out with an electric car that they're never going to make. But, you know, I saw a lot of BMW, I saw BMW's i3 electric car, Urban Suite. So you see the market kind of shifting over time. And when Tesla first came out, people weren't, they said, oh, electric cars are never going to be a thing. And then you see now there, there's a clear, clear shift. Ford is making electric cars. They just came out with a fully electric Mustang. They debuted at CES. Porsche came out with the Taycan. So all of that said, I think it's good. I think if you're not on a tight schedule, I think if you can avoid flying for those shorter distances, then I think you should. You probably should. It's better for your health, save you more time, and it's better for the environment too. And it makes that one little push towards you know moving the the needle, moving the trend in another way. And I think that's all good. If you have any other questions for me, always feel free to tweet me at Fox Nomad. I'll try to get back to you there. But for these longer topics, maybe we'll do a Q&A at the end of a couple of episodes that I can get back to you on. Let me know if you have any questions about this show, any comments, if you want some more details, a lot of pictures and videos coming up. Make sure that you follow me at Fox Nomad on Twitter and you're subscribed on YouTube if you want to see the Opium Fueled Party. Hopefully you've enjoyed this podcast. It, I had to ch- I changed the whole first segment after last night, and hopefully I was able to explain it well, and you were able to visualize it. It was a very late night, so those guys were there until the early morning hours. I didn't stay that long, but it was still a pretty late night for me. And who knows how much of a contact high I got? But it's a pretty massive, massive uh, marijuana, and you know who knows what else cloud going on there. If you're still listening and you haven't already, be sure to leave a five-star review to wherever you're listening to this podcast from, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and so on. Thanks again for listening, and I will talk to you in the next episode. 